Making a shift in your career can be daunting. And my guest today made a big one. Claire Rogers became the CEO of World Vision Australia in 2017. And she did it without all that much experience in the world of humanitarian aid. Instead, she came from ANZ, where she'd been head of digital banking. And Claire's move from one of Australia's biggest banks to running the country's biggest charity gives us a good indication of where this hugely influential organisation is directing its priorities, as it recognises the evolution in how social impact is measured, in how the public want to engage, and the growing importance of partnerships with companies and other organisations that are aligned in their values. And that's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast. I'm your host, John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment and spending decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. Claire has had a couple of years to find her feet at World Vision, and she shared some really personal insights about the challenges she faced and the lessons she learned along the way, but also about how she adapted her skills and experience earned at ANZ to help steer the growth of World Vision. It's interesting to hear Claire describe World Vision as a business, and donors as investors. It shares the language we use a lot on this podcast, language of impact investing and of impact measurement. I was keen to hear more about the finance side of things. Claire explained there's a World Vision impact bond on the way. Payment systems are going decidedly digital and they're working with DFAT to help fund entrepreneurs who are stuck in the missing middle. Claire was generous and frank She shared some really vivid imagery of the scenes of crisis and destruction she'd seen on the ground, the challenges of working and staying focused in these tough conditions, and how she adjusts when she gets home. I get so much out of this chat, and I hope you do too. You can let me know your thoughts on iTunes or on the website at johntreadgold.com slash goodfuturepodcast. And that's also where you'll find all the links and the show notes. All right, nothing left to do but dive in to my conversation with Claire Rogers. Can you get us up to speed on on where you found yourself in, in the last few months? John, I went to... Mozambique 10 days after Cyclone Ido made landfall and uh, driving through the city was like passing through scenes of an apocalypse littered with broken trees, damaged buildings, ripped up telephone and power poles. It just felt like some horrendous monster had been through and destroyed everything. So it was really eerie being there afterwards in the silence and seeing this devastation. The disaster impacted more than a million people and killed about a thousand across Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. And so it was quite a profound experience to see that and to see a country that has so little on its knees, essentially, after one of the worst ever storms. So we're still kind of counting the damage. And in fact, actually, another cyclone hit just five weeks later. So the challenge, I think, of climate change in our world is a humanitarian crisis. Having seen that, that's what I've come back to actually talk a lot more about. 
Uh, in Cambodia, I was due to go to Cambodia, so I diverted to go to Mozambique when the crisis hit. And uh, the contrast, you know, Cambodia was not a stable place 40 years ago, obviously, for very different reasons. The genocide and the political crisis in that country that led to so many deaths and just a horrendous experience seeing some of the information about that time. But Cambodia now is a much more stable environment. And in contrast to Mozambique, I was struck by how much a stable environment helps people to face into and deal with the challenges of poverty and get out of poverty. And so my great anxiety now and something that we as an organisation really want to talk about is that if we don't face this question of climate change, whatever you consider to be the reasons, whether it's warming or not, there is a profound shift in our climate that is going to have a horrendous impact on the poorest people in the world. And it's a global issue. And we have never, as a global world, confronted an issue of this nature and had to work together in this way. And so I think it's a really important issue that we start to speak into. So that's what I've been doing. Thanks for that. That sort of really vivid imagery there. I mean, I think when we see that on our screens, we really feel for the people there and what they've lost. But I'd, I'd love to hear about how you prepare yourself um, when you're en route to a disaster zone like that. Is it sort of a matter of focusing, you know, on, on staff and technical issues to, to kind of detach? Or can you not really prepare yourself? You've just got to dive in. Well, in some ways, it's more about what you do afterwards that's of value rather than how you prepare. There are practical things. I knew... Going into Mozambique, there was not going to be any electricity, so you do practical things like get hold of a head torch, you know, malaria tablets, water purifiers, all those kinds of practical things for safety. But when you're there and also when you get home, it's really important to sit with what I've seen. I've found it's really important to sit with what I've seen and to talk about it so that I can both personally process it, but also be able to articulate what I've seen. And I'll give you an insight into this. You know, at the time, it didn't register with me. I went out to different communities and I saw, I did a food drop to a community that had been isolated by the floodwaters as a result of the cyclone in a rural area. They'd been waterlocked for 10 days and we did a food drop for them. And then I also went to schools in the city of Beira where people were just camping because they had no home and there was really no food there either. When I came home and started to process those stories, I was struck by the difference between the children in those two locations. In the city, the children were hungry. In the community that was isolated by water, the children were actually malnourished and they had signs of malnourishment that predated the cyclone. No one's ever explained this to me. It's kind of difficult unless you see both contexts, but I now know the difference between hungry children and malnourished children. Hungry children still play and sing and run around. Malnourished children just sit silently, either in their parents' arms or stand beside their parents with these big eyes and they look at you and they're just not, you know, they're not being kids. You can't protect yourself. And in a way, compartmentalising is the worst thing I can do because then I can't 
speak and advocate for these kids. Even though, you know, some people have given me that advice and said, just compartmentalise, you'll be okay. But to capture that and to be able to communicate that, it's not something you can pick up on a news story on the television, but it brings the situation to life for people so that they can understand it and experience some compassion because ultimately that's what it's all about. There are fellow human beings in a situation that any of us could have been born into. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that, that compassion is obviously vital and we can, we can hear that in your voice and that's clearly a huge part of what you do. And I think it's important to double back to what you said about climate change and, and the fact that, you know, that's a major challenge that we've never had to face before. There's been nothing like it and that it's going to be happening more and more and that for the communities that it's going to hit the most, they're the ones that are at least prepared for it. And as you were saying, you know, if you're already malnourished and you get hit by a crisis, it's even harder to have that resilience that's so important. So how have you guys been managing that in terms of, you know, you can obviously go in there when there's a crisis and you can offer practical assistance on the ground, but have you started to shift sort of your programs in terms of the more macro kind of systems change that's required to sort of, I guess, get ahead of climate change and maybe try and, you know, pull us back before we, we get a fall over the edge? Yes, absolutely. There's a couple of things worth mentioning there. One is we have a reforestation program and in fact, our brains behind this uh, wonderful guy called Tony Ronaldo has just won the Right Livelihood Award, which is the equivalent of the Nobel Peace Prize in our industry for his work in reforestation. You know, he worked in Niger for 15 years trying to help them reforest denuded landscapes. And he finally figured out that under the ground was this root system of trees and they were just getting chopped down too quickly and so he developed a community education program and now you can see the reforested areas from a satellite picture in space so some of our programming is absolutely about that and while you might say that's not focused on the children what we've learned is that when you reforest an area they are more resilient against floods the water table lifts and so children don't have to walk so far to get water which means they're then in school Parents start to get a livelihood, which means they can afford to send their kids to school. So these things are fundamental to transforming humanitarian outcomes. So that's one area where our programming is really an important part of addressing climate change. And that program has actually been listed in the top 10 things that we think will fix globally, that the researchers have said will fix climate change if we reforest large parts of the world. And part of that is educating people on how to do it and encouraging them to take that leadership. The second thing is that in an emergency context, we just have to come in and help do basic stuff, survival stuff. It's very obvious. But what we are finding, particularly with protracted emergencies now, that we're shifting our programming after the initial wave of support. We've started to shift our programming into helping people with resilience strategies, disaster resilience strategies, livelihoods, rebuilding livelihoods. So in Mozambique right now, we're activating uh, what we call our livelihoods program, getting grains to the farmers so they can replant to get another crop because there's a small window over which that we can do that before the weather seasons change that's moving from direct emergency work and that's starting to blend into our development work. So the boundaries between the two are changing because we want to 
help communities become resilient and not just be at the mercy of these emergencies. Yeah, look, and I'd love to wind back to when you started at World Vision as CEO. That was in 2016, after many years at ANZ running digital development, I believe. Um, and I'd love to know, you know, was there a culture shock there going from a high level banking role to suddenly being on the front lines of, of poverty and, and crisis situations? John, it certainly has been a wild ride. I've gone from a high end corporate environment wearing suits and heels as yes, the head of digital banking at ANZ to sitting barefoot on the ground among the Samburu women of Kenya as the CEO of World Vision. It's been thrilling, disturbing, at times heartbreaking and inspiring. I've suddenly found myself in a role that's required a whole part of me that I didn't realise, you know, I always had a passion for social justice and for supporting those who don't have as much but it's forced me to examine my personal commitment to social justice. And my moral universe has been shaken to its core by seeing World Vision's work with the world's most vulnerable people. And then most people will know World Vision for your child sponsorship program. I mean, I grew up watching those ads. Is this still where you get the bulk of your funding? We have a healthy mix of high quality, sustainable funding across a diverse range of sources. Child sponsorship is still a major source of funding and it's that one child where a family who sponsors a child can make a difference or an individual can make a difference. And now that I've met some of the children on the other side of that, I know that it makes a profound difference both in the community and in the individual child's life. Our other sources of funding include donations to appeals, emergency relief, you'd be familiar with 40 Hour Famine, and we now have a new program, the Global 6K Walk for Water. We have a number of very generous philanthropists that we work with and the Australian government and other institutional donors from around the world have put their confidence in us to deliver projects into communities and improve the wellbeing of children. And then in that focus on donations, what shifts have you seen in, in how people have chosen to make donations? I mean, you've only been there for two years, but I'm sure you're, you're well aware of, of how things have, have shifted and, and, and evolved in the last couple of decades. Um, what are you seeing there? Look, we could talk about payments. It's definitely relevant. But before that, I just want to flag that the most important issue at the moment that is affecting or is in the relationship with donors is this question of impact. We've done a lot of research and it's very clear that donors have two priorities. One is, did you do what you said you'd do with the money? And number two, did it deliver the impact that you said it would? We're a high impact business and that's what needs to connect donors to us. Then we back it up with seamless, easy payments. But if you just focus on the payments, I don't think that's what's going to change the game. But having said that, the way Australians give to charities like ours and how much they give is evolving at a rapid rate. You know, gone are the days, I think, of knocking on doors for donations or asking our supporters to post back a paper coupon. We need to be innovative and meet people where they're at. And, of course, reduction of cash in moving around society is an important part. You know, the old bucket where we'd throw in their spare change, it still exists but increasingly we're needing to trial things like tap and go to encourage 
the equivalent of those types of donations. But what I'm really looking for is people that want to come and partner with us over the long term and achieve impact. I think that providing good payment services is an important part of that, but it's not transformational. That impact is clearly huge. Uh, I knew World Vision Australia was big, but I was blown away that you have, you know, well over 400 projects globally pulling in hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and the diversity must be huge in terms of geography and outcomes and impact. How do you visualise such diversity, um, you know, being at the top as CEO? How do you stay on track with sort of having a unified strategy? Yeah, look, honestly, the diversity is huge. Being part of a global organisation helps with that. So I know that I don't have to cover everything. But for my own development and leadership of the organisation, I've tried to cover key regions. So this year I've got a high focus on the Pacific, which is why I'll be visiting all our countries where we work in the Pacific. Next year, my focus will be on the Middle East. So I try to cover regions because you can't go to every country, but regions gives you a strong sense of the issues being faced in those parts of the world. But also, I've worked very closely with the global team. In fact, I've been one of the sponsors of this in developing a global impact framework for World Vision. And that's informing the work that World Vision does. We have five central areas of focus, health, education, child protection, WASH, which is water, sanitation and hygiene, and livelihoods or economic development. And what we are now in a position to do is collate all the data across the entire partnership and we'll be able to tell you very shortly how much of our work globally is meeting expectations or outperforming expectations or even where they're struggling because it's normal that we would have some programs that struggle aid is not development is not an easy business and really deeply understanding the causes of poverty and addressing those is where we get our best results but at times there are also external things that happen that mean we need to revisit you know we have a community in Ethiopia we were just about to finish their leaders were stepping up to own it and a warlord just decided that you know he wasn't supportive of the way things were going in that community and he came in and kicked a whole lot of people out of the community smashed all the schools you know a whole lot of change was then reversed and so we had to review what our approach would be and of course we're staying so I'm really excited about this framework. I don't know that there's too many organisations who've really confronted this and, and worked on this. And that gives us the capacity to also live our commitment, which is to focus on vulnerable communities. Because we need to constantly review whether we're working with the most vulnerable children. And also, you know, our approach is to build capacity in the leaders in the community. And I've seen that. It's so exciting and so powerful. And so finishing in a community is actually not a sad thing. It means that they're ready to be sustainable and stand on their own feet. So that's how we're thinking about impact and that's how we manage to handle an enormously diverse portfolio. Well, that's it. The, the global impact framework really is very interesting. Can you, can you talk in a little bit more detail about how you sort of actually measure that impact? You know, I think we talk a lot about impact measurement on this podcast and I think my listeners are a little bit more technical in that side of things. It'd be great to hear how you guys are managing it because there's so many frameworks out there at the moment. So we start with the sustainable development goals. But let me give you an example to bring it to life. A community I visited in 
Cambodia recently, they did a baseline when they first came into the community on those five areas of health, education, child protection, wash and livelihoods. We'd been working in the community for 10 years, actually 12. We've got three years left in that community. And they reported to me that from very low baseline water and sanitation, 95% of households had a toilet and sanitation services. 95% of kids were in school. And this is a community of about 3,000 people. They'd addressed family and domestic violence and were starting to see huge changes in attitudes between husbands and wives and in protecting and caring for their children. Their economic income had gone up and in the health space, their vaccinations and all that kind of stuff was well covered. The last indicator which hadn't gone up high enough was in malnutrition. There was still 35% of children had malnutrition. And so that's going to be the focus of the last three years. We're going to double down on that because all the other areas have moved so profoundly. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of a better business model than seeing that kind of transformation in just 10 years. Remembering that this is social transformation. This is not just walk in, put in a water pump and walk away. This is the attitudes and leadership in the community stepping up to own and set these expectations and encourage people to be a part of thinking about education and sanitation and the health of their children in this way. Oh, and I forgot they'd gone from very high maternal and child health deaths in childbirth to zero. And that was through education in not using the local birth specialists that were untrained and ill-equipped to handle birth emergencies. So really profound shifts in, in changes in attitude. So that's how we measure impact. And that's what I get excited about. The last thing I will say is that because I'm a bit of a leadership nut, I've always been fascinated by leadership. I have been so encouraged and excited by seeing people stepping into leadership roles in communities with nowhere near the leadership education that I've had and seeing their excitement to play those roles in their community. And, you know, that's why working with World Vision is so profoundly efficient because for such a small amount of money, and I'll tell you in that community in Cambodia, our budget for that community is about 250 to 300,000 Australian dollars every year for us to be able to get that kind of change. And for that, there's about, I don't know, nine to 10 staff, World Vision staff. For us to get that kind of change in the community, you couldn't do it for that kind of money without having community leaders coming forward and growing into that leadership. And that's why one of the big reasons why I think your listeners should invest with World Vision. It certainly sounds as if you have a, a really broad coverage in each program in terms of outputs and outcomes certainly not sort of air dropping in water pumps and thinking your job's done you know being there for a decade covering a whole range of, of metrics and indicators and I just wonder is the gem is the real key there that it's sort of an evolution and learning I mean do you kind of shift your theory of change as you go there in terms of you know you said that there was that one metric that wasn't shifting so you're going to put your focus there how does that evolving structure take place in in, in a program like that? 
I'll shift gears slightly to, uh, particularly on that malnutrition one. It wasn't that it hadn't moved, it just hadn't moved as high. So I think it had come up from something like 25% to 65% no longer malnourished. It wasn't enough. You know, the vulnerable children in the community was that remaining 35%. Sometimes it's also about the pace of the change that we want to see happen. So that's why we would double down. But on malnutrition particularly, that is one of the more challenging aspects of the work that we do because you've got to change societal attitudes to a feeding your children so i'm going to shift to another country east timor which tragically is the third worst country in the world for malnutrition and it's only an hour's flight from australia there we were finding that our normal approach to malnutrition and addressing it wasn't getting traction. So some of my team, Clever team, got together with different parts of our programming. So the health programming came together with the livelihoods programming and came together with maternal and child health. And what we've done in working with the East Timorese government, Timorese state government, and farmers in regions of East Timor is taught them about superfoods vitamin and nutrient dense foods getting the farmers to grow those so sweet potatoes a great example soya bean uh, chickens eggs and there's a, a herb that grows naturally there moringa and teaching farmers to grow those foods mums to cook with those foods and the health system to teach that those foods are what you should feed your children and in a relatively short space of time we have seen the number of food groups that children are eating in East Timor go from, I think it's 2.3 to 4.8 food groups. So that is a significant shift by coordinating our different technical programs together. And so that's the kind of evolution of our programming that, that we do on a regular basis. Some of the terminology you've used, you've talked about World Vision as a, as a business and, and suggesting people invest in World Vision as a business. How do you see this shift as, you know, philanthropy is starting to engage impact investing in these sorts of things? There's a lot of discussion of the private sector needing to engage with the, the SDGs, the Sustainability Development Goals. Has that been a part of the way you, you hope to evolve World Vision to have more of a sort of commercial approach? The first thing I'd say is that partnering with a social outcomes, highly measured social outcomes and social change is what I'd encourage your listeners to do first. Impact investing is where it's going to go. But from my perspective, and I came out of banking super excited about it and we were going to go really hard at it, I think it's still early days because we have to work out how to organise for capital to get a financial as well as a social return. I think where it's going to go is partnerships with local governments in country and investors and execution on the ground, that three-way partnership, because the local governments want to get the best they can out of their tax investment in their communities. If they can get to a point where they've got a tax system to support things like mature health systems. So I think there's still some evolution to happen in this space, particularly in the NGOs, to be able to organise their fieldwork for capital. 
having said that, we're close to issuing our first bond and we have an impact investing working group, which is looking at our tangible opportunities that could be investment ready in the future. And what I would expect is that you'd see us do that globally, not just as World Vision Australia, because that gives us greater scale to be able to offer to investors. And so what's needed to change within World Vision to drive towards impact investing? You know, when people put capital in, expecting a financial return, there's a level of governance, there's a level of execution discipline that our partners, and it's not that necessarily that World Vision needs to change, but the way we work in communities and the level of education and understanding that, say, a farmer co-op might have for what they can and can't do. And so it's that level of transformation. At the moment, we have a number of farmer co-ops where we're helping them get access to pricing information, helping them work out where their markets are at so that they can get better value from their produce. We would need to increase the controls and the the change in that space for them to organise, to be able to be invested in as capital. Having said that, you know, we would take a portfolio approach and work across a number of entities to diversify risk. So the change that needs to happen is between World Vision and the beneficiaries of that capital to be organised in a way that would meet the expectations of a very mature capital environment or a capital investing environment. And some of that work is already underway with some of our initiatives to enable that to happen. And the first example of that is our first bond, which is focused on microfinance, which is a much more mature model of development and does return financial as well as social returns. Yeah, look, that's great. And, you know, World Vision is uh, Australia's biggest NGO. So great to hear you guys are, are really pioneering that. And I think that will really, you know, foster growth and evolution in the sector, in the community as a whole. And, you know, starting with a bond, you know, working with debt, great place to start. What other sort of, I guess, test cases have you got for impact investing? Have you, you know, taken equity in any, in any small organisations? Is there any sort of investment income coming through yet? Uh, what we've done is... Uh, and actually DFAT's been very supportive of this as part of their innovation exchange and aid for trade. Where we are experimenting with entrepreneurs in some of our field work is we've set up a program called Small and Growing Businesses because one of the challenges in developing nations is that there's microfinance, which is a good thing, but the banking systems, if, if someone's really good at what they do and they want to grow to that next level, the banking systems don't come down low enough to small enough parcels for a great entrepreneur stepping out of a microfinance environment. So we have, it's called the missing middle. It's actually a documented thing in a banking context in developing nations. And we have piloted with DFAT support and their aid for trade team. We have piloted a new program for small and growing businesses and picking a number of entrepreneurs. Many, many of them are women and providing loan finance for them to go to that next level and there's some great examples of women's businesses now becoming staff of 30 people so they're actually getting jobs for their communities as well as becoming more successful as a business and on the back of that we already have been able to leverage another 1.3 times in private impact investment 
and we're thinking about how we might be able to crowdsource further investors in that, even in small parcels at volume. Well, that's it. And World Vision certainly has the brand. And I think, you know, people would really, really respond to that. And, you know, like you've done with sort of child sponsorship, it would be a really tangible element that people are really um, engaged directly. And, and, you know, with modern digital systems, you can really monitor how things are happening. This evolution generally of World Vision is so interesting and I'm really glad we can dig into it. It sort of makes me think about a contrast between an organisation like ANZ that you know well and an NGO like World Vision. The legal and corporate structures are fundamentally different, but you've seen both up close. So is, is there a way they could come close together? You know, the big banks are attempting to find their purpose and they're sort of evolving to, I don't know, become a little bit more humanitarian, while at the same time NGOs are trying to engage with competitive markets. Do you see the lines blurring or, or should NGOs really defend their structure? I think that strong partnerships in any context can do amazing things. My view is that corporate and social responsibility has been a bit of a, for companies, it's been a bit of a, well, this is kind of my donation bit and I'll try and engage my employees with it. I think in this era where trust has been eroded by large institutions, I think there's a huge opportunity for corporations to get very strategic and very mission aligned with how they partner with NGOs rather than spreading everything across and doing a smattering of a whole host of things and nothing really progressing, which is actually a business issue when you do lots and lots of projects and everything jams up in the system and you get nothing delivered. It's kind of the same concept. I think there's an opportunity for real impact partnership and we're certainly starting to explore some of those relationships. It usually comes off the back of something like you know I'll, I'll use ANZ as an example they're very active in the Pacific so it might come from you know something that we could do together that really transforms the Pacific around a sustainable development goal but in other industries in the forestry industry it might come from you know really expanding that reforestation program and that being so mission aligned with an organization and so impact driven that I think it'll do both engage employees and build trust in their brands and also do some powerful stuff in the field. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, no, that's great. That, that partnership model really makes sense in terms of both parties being able to do what they do best, but coming together, you know, to create something different. Obviously, you know, having banking skills on one side and you guys on the ground. So yeah, look, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you did talk about uh, engaging staff and that kind of thing and engaging customers for a corporate and a lot of the time I try to make this practical for the listeners at home and I mean you made a major pivot from corporate Australia into the thick of humanitarian work do you have any advice for people who feel you know sort of trapped in their job uh, and who want to work to make a difference and, and how they could sort of make that shift my experience was I actually wasn't looking for a new job but when I was asked to consider the CEO job and bring my digital expertise and investment and commercial expertise to this context, I really couldn't say no. So probably my advice is be open to opportunities. I also deliberately did things in my career like go and get experience on a board, even though it was volunteer, but it gave me experience on a board. And in that case, it was a 
a not-for-profit organisation. So that gave me some exposure to some of the challenges. You know, in a commercial context, purpose is so important, but we haven't necessarily put much time and effort into it. And, and, you know, Simon Sinek's work has really encouraged corporations to go and face into that question. Purpose here is, you know, everyone comes to work with a huge amount of purpose. My job is to corral them into the execution that's going to help us deliver impact so that it's not an individual purpose, but it's a collective purpose for impact. All those skills that are required in commercial are required in NGO and vice versa. It's a question of emphasis. So I don't need to spend a lot of time on purpose, although it actually still is very important that we remain connected to the children we serve. Because if we drift off, then we're not going to deliver things that actually really help them and become engaged in our own agendas. So it is still very important, but we don't have to sit around and work out what that is. It's much more about the execution and the how. Whereas I think in a commercial environment, they're dialing up the purpose because that hasn't been a big part of it, but the execution and the how is probably not such a challenge. They're just different contexts. I think my advice to people is to do what you love, even if it means volunteering for a bit or being flexible on a short-term job for a bit until people learn what you can contribute. And what I've learned over my career is that opportunities emerge when you do that. Yeah, I think that's a really profound line. A collective purpose for impact. That's great because it, it's as useful for corporates as it is for NGOs. I think if we all have a, you know, if an organisation is driven by a collective purpose for impact, then good things happen. I like that. And look, that's some really great insights. And I think some really practical information for people there of how they can engage. And it's great to get into some technical stuff about impact investing. And it'll be really interesting to watch the development of a World Vision Bond and, and how that works in the structure. But just to finish off, as always, I asked my guests for a book recommendation. So are there any fiction or non-fiction reads, you know, related to development or not that uh, you'd like to share? Yeah, I've just read a book called The Bread of Angels by Stephanie Saldana. This is a lovely romance set in Syria in about 2005 or six, before the deep troubles. It's a profound insight into women of Muslim background and the author's Christian heritage and those two things coming together. In a world where 85% of people are religious and those numbers are growing, we don't quite realise that. We live in a very secular society in Australia, but the rest of the world is not like us. So this was just a beautiful story, but also for me an opportunity to understand the role of faith in other cultures. So it was both relaxing and enhanced my leadership because of that understanding. I'd encourage your listeners to read it. It really is a lovely, lovely story, but has so much rich material in it as well. Yeah, I like that sounds great. I think any exposure yeah, to broader cultures, religions and how they intersect is really important right now. And, and look, that's what literature is all about, really, isn't it? Taking us into another world. So, yeah, I think that's a really useful one. I don't know that one, but I'll, uh, I'll certainly check it out. My pile is growing. With that, I'll have to let you go. I've gone over time and I really appreciate your insights today. It's been really interesting stuff. And yeah, we'll certainly try and uh, keep up with the world vision evolution as it goes onward. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure to chat. Good stuff, Claire. Bye for now.